we'll dive into it then, shall we? Okay, that's permission. We're diving in. Our scripture text this morning is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and Luke chapter 6, verse 40. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then from Luke 6, Jesus says, The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Leo Tolstoy once wrote, Everybody thinks of changing humanity, and nobody thinks of changing himself. Why is it that we have such a hard time locating the problems within us and actually doing something about it, and we want to focus all of our attention, all of our energy on what people are doing out there, right? We want to fix, it is like the irony, right? And if you look at like 2020, in particular that election cycle, and really the whole year, I mean, what happened and what we saw was what was going on inside of people came out of them. Because when things are put under enough pressure, eventually what's on the inside comes out. Squeeze a grape and tell me what happens, you know? Uh, And and I think that the interesting thing is like so many people in that season, and maybe still today, just wait till 2024, it's going to be a thrill. Can't wait. Uh, One of the things we see is that people tend to focus their energy and their attention on the systems and the stuff that's broken and on things that they can fix. But the real problem isn't out there. Not that there's not problems out there, there are, but oftentimes we focus our attention out there, but what really needs to change is in here. So why is it that what Tolstoy said is so profoundly true? I mean, to me, it begs an important question, right? And it's a question that has a lot of different answers. Is change really possible? Is it really possible? Can people actually change? You know, can you teach an old dog new tricks, as the wonderful cliche goes? I mean, is it possible to change? I want us to think about that in the context of what we're talking about in this series, which is um, God's vision for the church, and in particular, what it looks like for us at Kendrick's Creek to be his church in the 21st century, uh, because it does bear some thought and consideration. Most of us tend to live our lives just on habit, which is a really good thing. If you had to think about everything that you did, you would, you would, you would die, right? You couldn't do it. I don't, when I get in the car, I don't have to think about everything I'm doing when I drive the car. Most of it just is automatic to the point of like, you know, sometimes you'll just be going and then, you know, like on a, on a weekday morning, if I don't drop the kids off or something, I still will drive to their school or something. You know, it's like, what am I doing here? I have no kids to drop off. You get so used to those patterns, those habits. So it's a good thing that you don't function with conscious thought all of the time. But we do need to give some thought to, when we have the time, to what it means to follow Jesus today in 2023 and how we do that as a community together. And so we talked about the idea that discipleship to Jesus is God's gift to the world and that the purpose of the church is to be a community of disciples. And we talked about how what that means is to really to follow Jesus, to be in the yoke with Jesus, to be pulling through life with Jesus. And that at a very basic level, there's four broad categories that we talk about. We talk about Jesus' way of life, 
Uh, the first one is seeking growth in the love of God, which we talked about last week in some degree, talking about hunger and thirst and desire and our orientation towards God's love. And the second one, which we're talking about this week, is using disciplines to practice the presence of God. See, there it is. And then the, the next few weeks, we're going to finish up those. I think it'll be really encouraging to you. But I just wanted to put it up there because then it's like highlights it in yellow and it looks really spiffy and kind of neat. Thank you. Dallas Willard said this, if we do not make formation in Christ the priority, then we're just going to keep on producing Christians that are indistinguishable in their character from many non-Christians. To me, this is a problem. And the problem is, like, whatever we think about change, whether it's possible or not, or how, to what degree it's possible, and how people change, and what actually changes about the person when they undergo a process of change, or whether or not we even like change, or whether or not change is just making us extremely uncomfortable, I don't really know. But the question is, like, why is it then that, like, regardless of what we think about that, like, many Christians, their lives just do not look radically different than they did before they started to follow Jesus, like, what, what is it? Um, the atheist, the kind of popular atheist, Christopher Hitchens used to have this test that he would do with crowds. He would say, okay, go at someone, show me a moral action that a Christian can do that, in, that I as an atheist cannot do. That was sort of his gauntlet. And people would just struggle with all kinds of things. The one question that stumped him, and part of this is, you know, this is not really, like, that's not a good question because of what I'm going to say next. So the one that stumped him was someone said, well, you can forgive your enemies when they've wronged you. He said, well, that's true. I don't think I can do that. But I don't think that's a moral thing to do. So there you go. So see, it's kind of a non-starter, right? Because the ground for followers of Jesus is that morality comes from God, all morality. Right, wrong, that's where it comes from. But the question then really is, you know, what is it that is to set followers of Jesus apart? We have a sense, right, that there is something, like our lives should look different. I know that's true for me. I think that's been true for many of you in your life as well. Uh, We say things like, in Christ you are a new creation. And the New Testament is full of commands to, and I quote, put off falsehood, slander, lust, greed, etc., end quote. Uh, But we just don't really do it, do we? Or we find it really hard to do, don't we? And so for me, I think one of the main reasons is that we just really don't know how. I generally think that most people don't want to be stuck in addictive cycles and patterns of behavior. I genuinely believe that most followers of Jesus and most people who go to church, they want to experience the kind of freedom that you read about in the New Testament. They want to experience the kind of freedom of like Peter being broken out of prison. Um, as much as that's in a literal sense, to also then kind of take that to your life in, in more of the figurative sense, for you to be broken out of prison as well. To quote old Charles Wesley, to break the power of canceled sin, to set the prisoner free. Right? We, we, we want to experience that, but how does it happen? So I think there's a few things we need to think about. Right? The first is this, Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. It's not that we don't want to. It's that we don't really know how, um, how to do it. And the other part of it is that we don't really have a great understanding of the church sometimes of how people change, which is this next point. So I have some prevailing theories of human change here. You may agree with some of them. You may disagree with some of them. This is just kind of what I see. Uh, and then we'll talk about a different model that Jesus actually um, gave us, which is not any of these. 
Okay? So the first one is, these first two are primarily secular models. The first one is that change is not possible. You can't really change. People just do not actually change. You can change your behavior, but at a character level, people don't really change. They're just kind of the same as they've always been. Um, maybe you felt that and experienced that in some degrees in your life. And I think that tends to come from a place where we see people who have professed to change or who have perhaps seemingly changed for a time, but then they revert back to really destructive, addictive, old, bad patterns of behavior, right? Now, most of us have seen that at least. And so one way that you can take that is to say, well, change just isn't possible. People can't change. Or that's just a fairy tale. People don't actually do it. The second one is what I like to call the self-help model. Uh, one, one permutation of this is that like, you can change if you just practice enough mindfulness and you do enough yoga and you eat enough brunch and you watch enough Netflix and you, just, you, you live your life, you know? then that's like one theory of change. The other kind of harsher permutation of this is, again, something that I heard a lot during the pandemic. Uh, anytime there's some, and just please watch this next time there is some kind of social, like major social issue you will hear someone say something like, come on, people, we can do better. We can be better. You heard that? I heard this so much. And of course, the, the, the biblical answer to that is, well, no, you can't actually. <laughs> try as you might, you're actually just not going to be better. And try as you might, under pressure, you aren't going to produce the response that you want to in the moment. Like, I think this is a challenge particularly for younger generations, the youngest of our generations, who have grown up with phones. It is easy for all of us to, when someone challenges with like a hard situation, to create some space there and say, I'm going to respond, you know, two days later with like a text, you know? Or in the olden days, you just like send a letter, but I guess, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, but so the idea is, is that you create some space because you can't respond like you want to in the moment. Now, all of us have, I think, been in situations where we were confronted with something, and we responded in a way, and then we felt bad about the way that we responded, and then we said, if only I had more time to think about what I was going to say, then I would have said it right. And then you have the whole argument with yourself in the car, I mean, with the person who's not actually there, but like with yourself, standing in for them. Anyone done this? Am I just crazy? No? Some of you are just like, you are crazy. Yes, you are objectively, you should see a counselor. Thank you. I Point taken. Um, but no, it's like, it's easy for us to do that. And of course, what, what are we feeling there? Except that like, we recognize that we can't respond to the moment the way that we wish that we could. Which of course, then the path of spiritual formation into Christ-likeness, which we're going to talk more about, is being able to then respond in the moment with love and grace. When now, I, I absolutely cannot do it. And to the point where like, I'm not thinking about it. It just is what comes out of me when I'm under pressure, right? When you're under pressure, what comes out of you is what's actually inside of you. And so that's, that's point number two, the do better, try harder model. The, the last three are kind of religious models. The third one is what I like to call the spirit zap model. Um, some of you have, have lived through this and experienced this model yourself. Uh, I have at various times. The idea is this. Um, we believe that it is God who changes us, correct? Yes. Correct, okay. And so in order for me to do that, I need to put myself in situations where God can change me, correct? And so I do things like I go to church, correct? Correct. And then we do other things like we go to revivals, you know, where we have three days of great preaching and great singing, right? Right. Some of you have done this before. And then after those experiences, what happens? I feel good. And I am 
better for a couple weeks. And then, after I had my religious high, then what happens? Real life kicks in. And then I start to sink and settle back to old patterns of behavior. So what do I have to do? I've got to go back and do it all over again. And you know, sometimes this takes uh, the permutation of people like rededicating their life to Christ over and over and over again. It's not that there's anything wrong with rededicating your life to Christ. I would highly recommend it. Isn't, to some degree, that what, that's what Paul said in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But the problem is, is that if you wait to present your bodies as a living sacrifice until you get to religious services once every three weeks to three months to three years, then maybe you're missing something. So it's the spirit zap model. The idea that I show up, the spirit zaps me, and I'm changed. Um, doesn't stick. Tends to not anyway. The other one is, the, is what I call the PRBGTC. Say that ten times fast. Just did that for the laughs, honestly. I just figured at this point you guys would be getting tired and like a little bit staring out the window. I'm over-explaining. So I figured I'd liven it up a little bit. This is what I like to call, um, well, I'll illustrate it for you. Say I have a problem with, you know, some kind of addictive pattern of behavior. Say I, let's say I gossip too much. I know I gossip too much. I want to stop gossiping, but I don't really know how. And so I go to, you know, my good friend who's a follower of Jesus and say, hey, like, what do I need to do to stop this pattern of gossip in my life? They say, oh, it's easy. Just pray, read your Bible, go to church. Okay. Say, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression, and I don't really know what to do. Dear friend and brother in Christ, what do I do? Well, it's easy. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. Okay. I'm struggling with issues in my marriage. My wife is just so good, and I'm so annoying sometimes. Isn't that right? Yeah. I'm trying to get some, some brownie points. What do I do? So we'll just pray, read your Bible, go to church. Again, it's not that those are bad things. It's not that those are wrong things. In fact, I recommend all of them. The problem is, is that if we think that every single problem you have is going to be solved simply by pray, read your Bible, go to church, then you're missing something really important. It's not that praying, reading your Bible, or going to church is wrong. It's just that purely from an anecdotal standpoint, as a pastor, I have seen many, many, many people I've experienced this in my own life, who have prayed, read the Bible, and gone to church, and their character did not change one bit. So, it's not that it's wrong completely, it's just it's insufficient. And the last one is that change isn't really needed. I have been saved by Jesus, I have an eternal palace for me in the heavens, and I do not need to worry about what I do with my life. If sin abounds, does not grace abound all the more? Well, not quite. <laughs> is we have an imperative from Jesus, to be transformed by him. Paul said, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a powerful command. And so the idea that changes is not needed is not helpful. So the question then is like, is this, what then actually changes us? Is there a model of change from scripture that is actually helpful. I do believe there is. Would you believe it? This is this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The idea, the fundamental idea, is something we touched on, that it is the Holy Spirit who transforms us from the inside out. As Paul says in Romans 8, it is the Spirit of God who gives life to our mortal bodies, and the same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies also. It is the Holy Spirit in us that changes us from the inside 
out. Okay, so, so far we're good with that, but I think this is again where we run into the problem, is like, how do I do this? <laughs> like, believe it's true, Steve, you're great, that was really funny, those illustrations, the whole Bible thing, those have me, have me go in there, but how do I do this? How do I actually do it? Well, again, here we'll go to Romans 12, and I think Romans 12 and Luke 6, the reason that we went with those, because they're very helpful, I think, for me in thinking about this. Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You must do things with your body to put yourself in a position to receive the Spirit. So if you think back to the old Spirit Zap model, that's not entirely wrong because the idea, the premise behind it is correct. I must do something in order to position myself to receive the Holy Spirit, right? It's not that I'm earning it, but I am presenting my body before the Lord, just allowing him to do the work in me, consenting at that very basic level. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That is a command, meaning that if you do not pay very careful attention to this, you will conform to the pattern of the world by default. That is the default pattern of human life. I just want to let that sink for a second. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That also is a command. But note, that is a passive command. Be transformed. You are not transforming yourself. You are putting yourself again in position to be transformed by the Holy Spirit in you. Which then produces this like second verse in, in Romans 12 that more people have questions and problems with and issues and, and just wonders about than anything else. What is God's will for my life? You know, and that's a serious question. We all struggle with that in different ways. But it's as we do this that indirectly we are then put in a position to be able to receive God's will for my life. It's the principle of indirection. It's really hard, and it's really hard if you're going through a hard situation. But the idea is that you are not going to figure it out by just trying harder and white-knuckling. You need to stop trying so hard. And maybe try a little softer. Jesus in Luke 6, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Every student, disciple is that word, who is fully trained will be like the teacher. What's he talking about? He's talking to his disciples about what? Who's their teacher? It's him. So it's a process of training. So at a fundamental level, the point is this. You need to stop trying so hard, and you just start training. That is the process of human change. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul puts this really nicely. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. What does that mean? Train yourself to be godly. Like that word godly means like God-like in character, right? We recognize it. When you see a godly person, what do you recognize about them? It's not that they're, you know, eight feet tall and they're built like an Olympian, you know? That's what the ancients thought it meant to be godly. But we understand something deeper. It's about the heart. It's about character. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is of some value. See, that's good. Physical training is of value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so does anyone know what this picture is on the left? Okay, that's okay. Um, this is Milo of Croton. Anyone heard of Milo of Croton before? 
Milo, of course, my dad used to tell me this story all the time. This is like one of his favorite stories. He was pretty into like running and different things. I'd go with him to the gym when I was in middle school, um, and I, you know, was not quite as strapping as I am today. Um, and so try, no matter how hard I tried, I could never do what my dad did. I tried so hard. I tried to swim faster than him. I couldn't beat him. I tried to lift more weights than him. I couldn't beat him. I tried to run faster than him. I couldn't beat him. It did not matter how hard I tried. I just could not do it. So my dad would tell me this story about Milo. Milo, as like a historical person in like the 6th century BC, won six Olympic titles um, as a wrestler. Um, and he lost his seventh one, and then I think he was like killed in combat because that was the thing that happened back in the day. Uh, but allegedly, he was like the strongest man in the ancient world. Uh, and so the legend has it that what Milo did to get strong is when he was just a, just a strapping lad, um, he would pick up a calf, just a baby cow, and he would carry it every single day. And then eventually, as the calf grew, Milo kept carrying the calf every single day until eventually it became a cow at which point he was said to have carried a full-grown ox. Now, what's the point? What's tr we understand how that works physically, right? This is the idea of progressive loading in terms of physical fitness, where you just add a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit of time, little bit of time, and that you don't lift an ox just by trying really hard. And here, I think, is the challenge for me, is when we talk about things like, I want to be a more patient person. I want to be a more loving person. I want to be a more graceful husband. I want to respond to the people that I meet in public with like a better witness. I want to evangelize the people that I meet and not feel so awkward when I share my faith. I want to be able to pray for people with confidence and boldness. Most of the time, in various ways, we think, we think that if we just try harder, then we'll do it better. What I'm telling you is it does not matter how hard you try, you will never be able to do it by trying. Because you can never lift an ox by trying. Paul says don't try really hard to be godly. He says train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. Jesus said the student who is fully trained will be like the teacher. It's this idea of a process of training. I hope that's like helpful as an illustration for you. Because I think it's pretty fundamental when we talk about um, what we call like spiritual formation. I want to go to this, this framework, again, that I find helpful as well, to think about like, if our goal as followers of Jesus is to become like him, to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, then I think, it's, again, it's helpful to think about how, what that process of training looks like. So we start with this idea of formation. You are formed and made in the image of God. You were made with an incredible amount of capacity for love and creativity and beauty and innovation. And, and just and, and goodness to resonate from within you. But we all know that that doesn't always, that's not always the thing that comes out of us because we have been deformed by the world in which we live, right? Classically and biblically, we say it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, this unholy trinity that works to deform the hearts and minds and souls of human beings, that the pressures of the world to conform to its pattern just by default make you think, act, believe, live in a certain way, is the pressures of our flesh, this kind of the part of us that is not rooted in God's goodness and his kingdom, that just leads us off into all sorts of things that maybe sometimes we wish we didn't do or think. And then we have an enemy who is actively at work pulling you away from the goodness of God. We are deformed from God's good image. Um, I was just reading a book about this. I won't go too far off on this, on this rabbit trail. But the idea is that like, you know, human beings are attached to God at like a, at like a soul level um, 
If you know anything about attachment theory, this is what is going at, but I won't delve too much into that because it'd take too long to explain, I feel like. Um, but it, we are attached to the love of God because he's the one who provides for us. In the garden, human beings are provided for by God. And that where things go wrong in Genesis 3 is not just when humans are disobedient. It's not just when they cede their authority that they do that as well. But they literally do what? They are provided for, they look to provision from the serpent. It's no longer God who feeds them, it's the serpent who feeds them, right? And so that shift then does something in us. Anytime we are looking to other things, trusting in other things to provide that which only God can provide, it's deforming us from who we were created to be. We're somehow less than human in in actual life and practice. So then the process then of becoming who God called us and created us to be is what we call counterformation. It's how you combat the deformation of the world. That prayer that we read together earlier was a counterformational practice. The world drags us off into greed and a scarcity mindset and what's mine is mine is mine and no one else can have it and we don't have enough and we're never going to make... No, 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 no. We have a father who abundantly provides for his children and so sometimes we have to do things that remind us of that. Uh, Practices of counterformation like reading scripture. Practices of counterformation like singing worship songs. Practices of counterformation like just going to church is a practice of counterformation. Spiritual disciplines is another word for this that we'll get to in a second. And then finally, what that then produces in us is transformation. So we are formed in the image of God. We are deformed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We counterform with the Holy Spirit through a variety of spiritual practices and disciplines, which results in transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit into ever-increasing glory. Does that make any, is that like somewhat marginally helpful? I don't know. I I hope it is. This was helpful to me. Um, But the idea is that like these spiritual disciplines are really important because they serve as the pathway for us to apprentice our lives to Jesus, to be changed by his spirit, and to be transformed into his his likeness and into his glory. Uh, Things like prayer, fasting, fellowship, solitude, silence, public worship, um, giving, service, you name it, there's a whole variety and slew of things you could put in that category. But that's the basic premise and idea. A friend and mentor of mine, Phil Meadows, explains it like this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms. And so this is what Phil says. He said, when, not if, they pray, fast, and give. He explained these disciplines are about growing in our secret or intimate relationship with the Father who knows us thoroughly, meets our needs, and delights in our service. For every disciple, these disciplines are the means by which we follow Jesus today, abiding in his presence, hungering for his likeness, and joining in his mission. We call them spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. And I think that's helpful for us. If you've heard that language before, could you just like put a hand up? It's like a few of you have heard that language before. Um, the thing is, like, with that, whether you've heard that or not, like, some of you like a challenge, and so you're like, yes, I'm all in. Give me the discipline, you know? <laughs> some of you, you hear, like, practices and disciplines, and you're like, I'm good, thanks. Like, practice? We talk about practice? No, we talk about practice. Some of you get those. Alan Iverson. Love Alan Iverson. Um, yeah, thanks, Al. Appreciate that. Um, but... <laughs> It sounds hard, and so I really like Wesley's language, John Wesley's language on this. He talked about his means of grace. Means of grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's power at work in our life. It's unearned, 
but it's God's power at work in our life to change us. It's, I mean, it's essentially, it is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, in the deepest part of us. And the means of grace are the conduits whereby we receive that power and that presence and that love. Things like prayer, scripture, fasting, singing, service, worship. You get the idea, right? It's like a pipe, I think, for me. That's the way that I find this particularly helpful. It's like a pipe carrying water. Um, because what you have essentially is like this. It's like, think of, think of the Father is here, right? My, my laser has quit on me. But the Father's at the top there, right? And it is the pipes who are carrying the grace and the power and the presence and the love of God into my life. Now, where most of us go wrong is that we make the pipes to be the thing that really matters, right? We say what really matters is that I pray. What really matters is that I read scripture. What really matters is that I go to church. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. What really matters is that I do those things. When what really matters is that you have the presence of God in your life. Those things are extremely valuable, but they are valuable only because they are means of grace, not because they are the end themselves. Jesus is the sole end of human life. And anytime you get those things out of order, anytime you elevate the means above the end, then what you're doing is you are worshiping an idol. And the worst kind of idols to worship are religious idols. There's this great story. I won't go too off on this, but it's an amazing story. Go look it up sometimes. It's 2 Kings 18, where when Hezekiah is clearing out the temple, and one of the things he clears out of the temple is a bronze snake that Moses had used to heal the people in the desert thousand plus years ago. And what it had done is the people had put it in the center of the temple courts and they worshipped it. What was once a really good thing for the people and their their healing had become the object of worship itself. Not soul worship, mind you. It was one among many. But it had become an object of worship itself. The means are only ever means, not the ends. And we don't measure Christian maturity by how much someone uses means. We measure it by the end. What does their heart look like before the Lord? Means of grace is how the pathway to genuine human transformation. This was like the, the thing from John Wesley that like set the world on fire was the idea that you can genuinely change. Okay, so last thing that I want to say is, you know, why this matters for us as a church. I hope that some of it's self-evident, um, but, but more than that, you know, as I was just really thinking about this this week and, and thinking about, you know, everything we've been talking about, there's this line from Jeff Henderson that I came across again this last week. And this is what he said, the time on the clock determines the play. The time on the clock determines the play. When you're starting the game, I'm going to use football because I like football. Is that okay? I I would use cricket, but I don't think many of you would be like super into cricket. I also know nothing about cricket. I should have said I would use rowing because like I was actually like a really decent like rower, Um, but like not many of you are and that like analogy wouldn't land and already your eyes are glazing like donuts right now. Um, The time on the clock determines the play. So I'm going to use football because we all love football and AFC, NFC championships today, I think, correct? Yeah. So some of you will be watching that. So the plays that they call in the first quarter, start of the game, they're, play, they're running off a script a lot of times, right? And those play calls are going to be a lot different from what they call in the second quarter, when it's third and 10 and you're down a touchdown. 
It's going to be different from the plays you call uh, when there's eight minutes left in the second quarter and you're up by three touchdowns. That play call is going to be different. Uh, it's also going to be different from the plays that you call when you're coming out of halftime. It's going to be different. And it's also going to be different when you get down to the fourth quarter and there's nine minutes left and you're down two scores. Is it urgent? Not yet. You got time. Keep your head in the game, you know? Play your cards right. You'll be all right. Is it serious? Well, it is serious. You can't mess around. This isn't the time to just run the fullback give, you know? If you've been doing it all game, it ain't going to get you across the goal line now. The time on the clock determines the play. And I just, I think, not only for our church, but for a lot of churches in general, I think we have to really get this idea. The time on the clock determines the play. Because, you know, honestly, hello. It's okay, she can, she can come out. You know, because the thing is, that was really wonderfully timed. Maisie didn't know that. but No, it's actually true, though. Because the thing that we have to think about as a church is not about us, but about the Maisies of the world. Because as much as we want to think that like, this is the next generation or the future generations or other generations, they are the current generation who are followers of Jesus today. And we have got to think about not only like how our life as a church is modeling for them what Christian life is about, but to give them something to inherit, a faith that, that if it needs to, can be revived in the first place. Revival doesn't do any good if there's nothing to revive. <laughs> and so I think this is, like, this is my heart behind this. Is like I want us to get first things first and to just remember that the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to follow him and be transformed into Christ-likeness. It's an invitation to not only be freed from the guilt of sin in your life, but to be freed from the power of it as well. That you don't have to be con- just stuck in cycles of behavior and of just frustration and disappointment. And that at one like very basic level, and this is what we're going to be talking about next week, personally, the thing that I have found is the most transformative spiritual discipline is genuine, real fellowship with other human beings who are also following Jesus. It is the like central means of grace in my life. As much as I don't like, I'm such an introverted person, sometimes I push back from it, but nothing has transformed my life more than that. So if you want to know more about that, Come back next week. Okay, It's a cliffhanger. But I just invite you to join me in prayer. So we're going to think about this a bit and bring this to the Lord in our lives. Um, just invite you to take a moment to center ourselves. Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you're speaking into our hearts and our lives, I ask that you would Give us ears to hear it, that you would magnify your voice and not the voices of the world, not the voice of our flesh, not the voices of the enemy, but that your voice would be the one that speaks. Ask, Lord, that you would silence those other voices in Jesus' name and to be the voice that speaks truth and life to us. Lord, we offer you our hearts, our lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice to be transformed by you. Now, for some of us, maybe there is a thing that has come to mind or is weighing on our hearts that, that we just we know we need to do something with. 
And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the courage to do what you are inviting us to do, that thing that has come to mind during this time together today. Give us the courage, give us the faith to do it, whatever it is, to not just ignore it and get caught up in the rest of our day, but to make a commitment here and now that we are going to do that thing. Perhaps most of all, Lord, I pray that your grace would transform us from the inside out, that we would be a people who are transformed into ever-increasing glory into your likeness and your image, who you called and made each and every one of us to be as your beloved sons and daughters. Root us in your love, Jesus. God, we thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.